I was miserable and angry. Then I had a run-in with the Almighty that devastated me and humbled me before the Lord. After going through that grueling experience, I could not imagine ever returning to my sexual sin. Yet three weeks later, I was sitting in my apartment one morning and the old sexual temptations once again overcame me. And once again, I allowed myself to be led off into sin without so much as an argument. How many times have you promised yourself, I will never do that again, but soon found that you were doing it all over again? If that cycle continues long enough, you may start believing that you cannot possibly stand against these powerful temptations. That's what Steve Gallagher used to think until he learned how to win the battle against temptation. In this episode, we continue to share with you the truths found in our YouTube series, 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Porn Addiction. Today's topic, temptation is a winnable battle. This is Nate Dancer, and you're listening to Purity for Life. Oftentimes, temptations can feel so overwhelming that it seems that there is no escape possible except to give in. But Scripture promises us that God will enable us to endure and to escape from every temptation. So, what do we do when our experience doesn't line up with the victory promised in Scripture? In this segment, Steve Gallagher talks about 1 Corinthians 10.13 and shares the wisdom found there on resisting temptation. Because if we aren't prepared to fight, then we won't be able to. Okay, truth number 16. Temptation is a winnable battle. In 1982, I went through a horrific six-hour ordeal where I experienced a taste of the horrible mental anguish of hell. I don't have words to describe what that experience did to me. I was an arrogant, violent cop, full of pride, full of perversion, full of myself. I was miserable and angry. Then I had a run-in with the Almighty that devastated me and humbled me before the Lord. After going through that grueling experience, I could not imagine ever returning to my sexual sin. Yet three weeks later, I was sitting in my apartment one morning and the old sexual temptations once again overcame me. And once again, I allowed myself to be led off into sin without so much as an argument. It was the same old sexual trance that left me feeling powerless to stop myself. One day, not long after that, I read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. This verse really stumbled me because it didn't seem to line up with my experience. Where was the way of escape for me that day? Where was the strength to say no to that powerful temptation? And once I caved into that temptation, why did I feel so utterly impotent to stand up against those that followed? 
It was years later that I came to understand that to see the truth of this verse, you must read it in its context. That begins at the end of chapter 9. Paul said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. He went on to say, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul was describing to these Corinthian Christians the disciplined life he led. He was letting them know that even he could be destroyed if he didn't maintain control over his carnal nature. The word disqualified he used here is the same word he employed in Romans 1.28 when he talked about God giving sexual sinners over to a reprobate mind. As he opened chapter 10, he used the children of Israel in the wilderness as an example of disobedience and unbelief. In verse 6 he said, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Then in verse 8 he said, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. He wrapped up this line of thought in verse 12 where he said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. When you look at the whole context here, there's no other possible way to understand it than to say that this is a sober warning to be very careful about the way we live our lives. If Paul were to condense this whole passage down into a simple sentence, I think it'd sound something like this. I live a very disciplined life because I don't want to end up like those Israelites who, in spite of all their spiritual privileges, were destroyed because they gave over to sexual sin and idolatry. And that shows the difference between Paul's life and my life in 1982. I had not yet learned the importance of living a disciplined life. You see, you don't prepare to face temptation at the moment of attack, you prepare for it in your daily life. A good illustration of this would be boxing. When I was young, I spent some time working out at a local boxing gym. There was also a professional fighter who trained in that gym. Of course, he fought for a living and was far better at it than I was, but I remember having the sense that he didn't seem to train all that hard. One night, I went to see him box at the Memorial Auditorium. I was excited to see him in action, but it turned out to be a pretty disappointing night. His opponent sensed his weakness and went right after him, knocking him out in the first round. Why did he lose that fight? Because he was undisciplined and sloppy in his training. Listen, skill alone won't win a fight. A good boxer knows that if he can't conquer himself in the gym, he will never overcome his opponent in the ring. The loafer runs two miles rather than 10. He quits his workout when he gets tired. He picks sparring partners who aren't a challenge. The fighter who has gotten into the habit of going the easy route has trained himself to be a loser. No matter how skilled he might be, when he gets into that ring, his lack of discipline and his unwillingness to be hard on himself is going to become evident to all. You could say that the reason I caved into that temptation in 1982 was because I had not yet learned to do my road work. And when you think about sexual addiction, you could really say that it's nothing more than a string of lost fights with temptation. 
A man is tempted to indulge in some form of sexual sin and he gives in to it. Then he's tempted again and gives in again. And on and on it goes, one defeat after another. Through my repeated failures, I had developed a defeatist attitude. I was in the habit of giving up as soon as the temptation presented itself. That fatalistic attitude wasn't going to change until my thinking changed. And my thinking couldn't change until I knew what it meant to spend quality time with the Lord every day. Finally, in late 1984, I started praying and spending time in the Word every morning. What followed were several months of freedom. Then in May 1985, the enemy caught me at a weak moment and I caved into a temptation to visit a prostitute in a massage parlor. But I was so disgusted by that experience that I never committed adultery again after that. I didn't realize it at the time, but my devotional life had made it possible to develop a lifestyle of victory. My failure in that massage parlor turned out to be an anomaly to this new way of life. It wasn't until later that I made the connection between my newly found freedom and my growing relationship with the Lord. Listen, temptations are as much a part of the Christian life as going to church. In fact, they're a necessary element to our probationary time on earth. This world is a testing ground to see if we will choose to live for God or for self. If you want to win the battle with temptation, get on your knees before God, commit yourself to establishing the disciplines of a godly life, and ask Him to sustain you in times of weakness. And before you know it, the old life of defeat will be behind you, and you will begin living the life God meant for you to live. For a sex addict, temptations often lead straight into sin. So when a person determines to fight his way out of sexual sin, he realizes that he must begin the fight for purity at the level of temptation. But the battle can be so fierce at times that men often ask us, how do I know if I allowed temptation to cross into sin? In this next segment, biblical counselor Jim Lewis explains the difference between temptation and sin, how to know where that line is, and shows us how to avoid crossing it. Maybe many Christians don't ask themselves these questions. What's the difference between being tempted to sin and actually committing the sin? When does dealing with temptation actually cross the line into rebellion against God? How do I know when I have crossed the line and I'm displeasing to God? For men who deal with sexual sin, and the struggle with fantasy and an impure thought life, these questions become very important. First, let me say that there is a difference between being tempted and committing sin, and that just because you're tempted, you're not necessarily committing sin. Also, the fact that you are being tempted doesn't mean that you're not right with God. Our example in this is Jesus. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was in the Judean desert fasting for a period of 40 days after which he was tempted by Satan himself. We're told of three separate episodes of temptation, what Satan said to Jesus and how Jesus responded with scripture to counter the lie of the devil and thwart his evil scheme of luring the Son of God into sin. We're also told that this temptation happened immediately after Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River 
where he was endowed with the Holy Spirit, the Father's love and approval was affirmed with a voice from heaven. We're also told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was under the leadership of the Holy Spirit the entire time he was being tempted. That means that you can be spirit-filled and spirit-led and still be tempted. Just because you're being tempted, it doesn't mean that you're not right with God. Jesus was tempted, and he was certainly right with God. There was never a time in his life that he wasn't. Add to this the fact that Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every manner the same as we are, yet without sin. So, being tempted is not the same as committing sin. And being tempted doesn't mean that you have already sinned. Now, having said that, it is still very important to battle against temptation immediately and to end the temptation as quickly as possible, lest you stray from temptation into sin. You can't let tempting thoughts linger. And many people cross the line into sin before they realize it. Letting down your guard and failing to be vigilant can lead to serious consequences. Take the example of King David. How did he fall into the temptation with Bathsheba that ravaged his life and led to the destruction of his kingdom? In the opening line of this story, we are told that the king was already in trouble in his heart long before he ever laid eyes on the young woman. It was the spring of the year. His army was in the field of battle, and instead of going to war with his commanders, David chose to stay behind in Jerusalem to enjoy the pleasures of his couch and his palace rooftop. He was shirking his responsibility and indulging the flesh. So when he spotted a young woman bathing and took notice of her beauty, it was a short step to take right into lust. His heart was far from God already because he had opened a door by feeding his flesh. Often men will fall hard into lust and give in to sin and then wonder why it happened. Why did I give up without a fight? Then, upon reflection, they realize they had given into anger a few days before, and they hadn't made it right. The Bible calls that giving the devil a foothold. Or they watch some inappropriate movie, nothing sexual, but with a lot of violence and foul language. Again, they had opened a door to temptation. Or perhaps they had just been lax in their prayer and Bible time. When you lay your tools down, when you are not vigilant to stay strong in every area, when you are tempted, you are far more likely to give in to fantasy and sexual sin. Now compare the reaction of King David with that of Joseph from the book of Genesis. The Bible says that 
Joseph was pursued by the wife of his master Potiphar, who repeatedly tried to seduce him into lying with her. Now, many young men might have willingly given in, but not Joseph. He responded to her advances by saying, How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph had already made a decision in his heart that he would not give in to sin, and his sincere devotion to God kept him from sin when he was tempted. He was vigilant in keeping his heart right. And that empowered him to control his behavior. So herein lies the key. If you keep your heart right with God, you will not sin with your behavior. Let me say it another way. If you maintain godly attitudes in your heart, if you cut off temptation in your mind, it will not find its way into your actions. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. In the section in Matthew 5 where Jesus is interpreting and applying the law, this is what he was saying. The law says that adultery is sin, and so it is. But the sin actually begins in the heart attitude of lusting after a woman. Cut off the lust, repent of the lust, and it will never proceed to adultery. The law says do not murder, but the sin begins in the heart attitude of hatred. And so you can murder in your heart without ever carrying out in deed. The law says that divorce is sin, but the sin begins in the heart long before the action of divorce by disregarding your wife and disrespecting God's design for marriage. Jesus taught that it's not your behavior that defiles you, but the attitudes that flow out of your heart. Sin begins in the heart long before it shows up in your behavior. Check the thermostat of your heart to see where it is set, and this will determine where your actions take you. James wrote this in his letter. But each one of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. All of the Bible teaches that sin is a matter of the heart, an attitude, a believed lie, long before it is an action, behavior, or habit. And so, what is the remedy? How do you know when you have crossed the line between temptation and sin? The answer is to continually be vigilant, repenting of wrong heart attitudes, and to pursue holiness in your thought life. And you'll never cross that line. There's a wonderful prayer at the end of Psalm 139 that should be employed on a daily basis. David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David is praying that the Lord will search him out in his heart, reveal anything there for which he needs to repent, and then lead him in a right and eternal path. Correct my heart first, and then guide me into right behavior. Repentance is not just something that we do at the beginning of the Christian life to get into salvation. Repentance is something we do every day and throughout the day, every time God reveals an attitude that is selfish and sinful. If we continually respond to the conviction of the Spirit about our thought life and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, then we won't be coming to God later and confessing to God our sinful behaviors. In other words, if we pray, God, search me and show me so I can repent now, I won't have to come and pray later, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Take care of temptation in your thought life and you won't cross the line into sin in your behavior. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the last segment, Jim started off by talking about the three temptations of Christ in the wilderness. Jesus is the supreme example of how to win the battle against temptation, and in Matthew 4, we get to see exactly how he engaged his adversary to defeat the temptations that were used against him. In one of our recent chapel services, several members of our senior leadership spoke about the temptations of Christ. We thought that Pastor Ed Book's short talk on the second temptation would be especially helpful for you. All right, I get the pleasure of talking about the second temptation out of Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. But by way of introduction, maybe just something you'll see if you look at the word temptation throughout Scripture, if you do a study on that at all, you'll find that it's a Greek word that is variously translated. Sometimes it's the word temptation or tempt, but it also gets translated in some versions of scripture as testing or trial and it's the same word behind it and it's kind of interesting don't you think that our temptations on the one hand are temptations and on the other hand they're trials and I think that is exactly the way we need to see them in reality it's like two sides of the same coin and there is that devilish side I like to think of it as the tails side on my coin <laughs> right? where he's making his appeal always to your lower nature, the worst part of you, and hoping that he can con you into falling, into failing, into rebelling against God in some measure, right? And ultimately uh, gratifying yourself at God's expense in some, some manner. But on the other side of that coin, God is there. God is in that situation, in that circumstance with you. And he's making his appeal to a higher nature, 
the divine nature that he wants to put in you or has put in you. And his desire, of course, is that you endure that temptation, that you withstand that temptation because the fruits, the spoils of that victory is character. It's the character of Christ that he's after. And there's no shortcut to that. And that's one of the reasons why temptations slash tests, trials, have to come into our life. They have a purpose, a divine purpose that you can't overlook. And I would just suggest it'll help us at times in the midst of the situation when we feel it as an overwhelming temptation. Just remember, there's another side to this coin. God's here with me, trying to give me some character out of this, right? So let's look at Matthew 4, beginning in verse 5, and pick it up, uh, the account here. Then the devil took him, or took Jesus, up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, it is written again, or also, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So it's interesting when I see this, uh, you know, just right there in my Bible, I have it underlined that uh, the devil took him up, it says, to throw him down. <laughs> that's kind of interesting, isn't it? It tells you something about your adversary. That's just the kind of guy he is. He takes you up, but it's always to throw you down. <laughs> Along with that, you know, it just, there's a lot you could say about the devil, and I don't want to get off on a tangent on that, but there is that devilish aspect and hand in every temptation that you're dealing with, right? And notice in this passage, it really stands out to me how brazen he really is. He has no fear walking up to the Son of God and holding a conversation with him. He has no fear of taking him into the holy city, as it's termed here in this passage, right? He has no qualms even about taking him to the temple in the holy city, the holiest place of the holy city, if you could say it that way, right? And we need to maybe keep that in mind sometimes. Uh, don't think that you're going to get to the place where you're in this holy place where you won't be tempted, right? I mean, I really thought that when I came here as a student, somehow, I, you know, maybe not so much consciously, but I remember being frustrated that here I am months into this program and I'm still tempted by lust. And a very wise person just kind of pointed out to me, well, did you think you would get past where Jesus got? <laughs> did you think that you would arrive at a place where you wouldn't be tempted anymore? And well, yeah, I think maybe I did, but I was wrong, okay? <laughs> so just let that be a lesson to us. And also you notice it doesn't really matter where you are. I hear guys talk about it sometimes and I've experienced it myself coming into this chapel on what we consider a holy hill in Kentucky. And here's our sanctuary, our holiest place. And there are guys who have struggled with lustful or filthy thoughts anyway, right here in this room, right? Because that's the way the devil works, okay? He's not deterred by any of those things. The only boundaries he observes as I read it out of the book of Job are the boundaries God puts on him, right? So, 
And then we see that he's taken Jesus up into this holy location. And what does he do with him there? He quotes scripture to him. Isn't that an amazing thing, <laughs> right? He quotes scripture. In the first temptation, Jesus defeated him. How? By quoting a very resourceful <laughs> uh, passage of scripture that applied right to the specific situation he was dealing with. And I've had conversations, by the way, with guys at times, and, and you know, I've asked, uh, asked them, what verses do you use to battle your lustful temptations? And you'd be amazed at the answers I get. I suggest that you'd make sure that you've picked a verse that applies to the temptation you're dealing with. That's what's meant to be conveyed here in these three accounts as well, that we need to choose the right weapon when we go at the enemy back with scripture. But so he, he comes at Jesus with scripture and, and really he's, he's essentially saying, look, that worked for you and you won that round, so let me try scripture and see what happens, right? <laughs> and, um, and he comes at him and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Right out of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, he left out one little phrase, but even the commentators generally agree that it's really insignificant. He did accurately quote this passage, and that was kind of surprising to me the first time I looked that up. I remember years ago looking it up and thinking, I'm, I wonder what he distorted here. I wonder what he left out or, or uh, uh, somehow misquoted scripture. And I was stunned in a way to discover that he actually quotes it rather accurately. And he certainly conveys the meaning of that passage accurately. But there is a, a devilish twist in all of this. Uh, I guess I should point that out because he didn't misquote it, but he certainly is misapplying it, yeah. right? <laughs> And that's just as bad and something we have to take note of for ourselves. And again, you know, even within the last couple of weeks, I've talked to guys who are doing this exact same thing, going around in circles over certain passages of scripture that they're misapplying and totally refusing to acknowledge that the word of God says a lot more than just this one little narrow chunk that they're stuck on. So let that be a lesson to some of us, all right? So if you are the son of God, he says to him. The passage immediately preceding this encounter with temptation in the wilderness was his baptism, where the heavens opened and what did God say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? This is my beloved son. First words out of Satan's mouth, even on that first temptation. If you are the son of God. You see how he comes against the very nuggets of truth that God gives you? That's what he attacks. As soon as you receive it, he's after it. He contends against every bit of truth that God's trying to give you and tries to get you to doubt it or let go of it. But Jesus' response here is also very instructive. He knows the heart of God very well. And that's kind of where I was going earlier when I was talking about, you know, he's misapplying the word of God. It's, you know, it is true. Uh, we have to know the word of God and you have to know all of the word of God. But I want to say to you that it's even more than that. We have to know the heart of God. That's the real antidote for keeping us from misapplying scripture when we know the heart of God. And that's one of the reasons why we have those Mercy Studies classes every Sunday night with you guys, because you have to know that God's will is mercy. 
You have to know his heart. You have to know God's character in a very full and rich way because that's your real antidote for these kinds of things. So Jesus knows the heart of God very well and he has no problem recognizing that this temptation, even though it's based on scripture, is a twisted, deformed appeal to pride. And he doesn't fall for it. And he says, it is written again, or it's also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And I want to take a couple minutes and and talk about this now from a biblical counseling perspective, where we talk a lot about putting off and putting on. So there's some putting off that needs to happen here, and it's pretty clear. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. The thing you need to put off is tempting God. Because Satan's appeal here is trying to get Jesus to accept this counterfeit of faith, this presumption. He's trying to push him over into presumption instead of faith in the word of God. To use it as a reckless license instead of actually living on it as a word of truth and faith. And... We have been guilty of using God's promises as licenses to sin or or excuses for reckless, sinful behaviors, right? I can remember driving to an adulterous relationship appointment and asking God to keep me safe while I'm driving the car because it was a real fear of mine that that's how I would get exposed somehow, you know? Yeah. And... You know, I just say that because that's the kind of thing that Satan was after here, to try and get us to to act presumptuously on the Word of God. And we we see times where, uh, you know, perhaps in your life it's more like blessing, asking him to bless your finances while you're freely spending on pornography, or asking God to give you a wife and or or to restore your marriage if you were married, but all the while you're consuming everything he's giving you on your self-life. You know, why would he give you one of his daughters in that circumstance if you're so bent on your self-life? You know, but that's the kind of thing, you know, we're like, but God, your word says, you know, you won't withhold any good thing from us. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I mean, I've heard all the arguments and they get trumped up and played in bold letters sometimes, you know, that sort of thing. But it's like when you're still consumed with self, why would he do any of those things? In the pulpit commentary about this verse, it says, in this refusal of Christ are implicitly condemned all who run before they are sent, who thrust themselves into perils to which they are not called, all who would fain be reformers, but whom God has not raised up and equipped for the work of reformation, and who therefore, for the most part, bring themselves and their cause together to shame, dishonor, and defeat with all those who presumptuously draw drafts on the faithfulness of God. In other words, write a check on the faithfulness of God with no scriptural warrant to justify them in believing that you honor Right, yeah, that's... But, you know, there's something even deeper I want to get at here because if we let Scripture kind of interpret Scripture, Jesus' reply came out of Deuteronomy 6.16. And if you look at that verse, it's actually a reference back even further to Exodus uh, in chapter 17 in Exodus. And this is what it means really scripturally to tempt the Lord. It says out of Exodus, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, 
which there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You hear their attitude loud and clear, right? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah or Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And it's that phrase that I was after, is the Lord among us or not? Because I feel like that question is in our hearts more than we recognize. It may not have that exact wording to it, but you know, it's kind of the question, is the Lord really here this morning in this service? Is the Lord really here at Pure Life Ministries? <laughs> is his power really here to set me free from addiction? Is he really able to help me in my daily battles with temptation? Is he really here? Is the Lord really in this place? Think about the things that make you angry or anxious, you know? and you've probably often find yourself saying some version of, is the Lord really in this? Is the Lord really in these difficult situations? You know, we have enough trouble sometimes convincing you that he's really in the job we sent you to or the roommate we assigned you to. Could the lack of finances be the hand of God? You know, that's another way this question gets asked in our hearts. Does God really want me to suffer like this? And, you know, if we took it outside of the ministry, I think the most common version of that question that is being asked in, uh, by professing Christians today is, is the Lord in this marriage? Is the Lord in this marriage? You see the tempting of the Lord that's going on in our hearts when we say things like that now? And we're just like those Israelites. We're quick to murmur, quick to complain. And even if we're willing to give God credit for the blessings in our life, we're still quick to think that he has nothing to do with the difficulties or the hardships or the testings or the trials of my life. And you gotta get past that. There needs to be that putting on then. Okay, so you put off those kinds of questions and what you need to put on in their place is some faith that God is in these things, that this is the hand of God. That's really the secret to biting your tongue instead of complaining, truthfully, is recognizing the hand of God in the situation acknowledging the hand of God in it, <clears throat> that knowing in your heart that everything that's happening in your life and your circumstances has passed through his hands. And I can tell you, I was telling someone this just uh, the, earlier this week, I have literally been in, uh, you know, I have a little chair where I do my prayer time in the mornings, and I have literally been writhing in that chair with tears running down my face in just complete turmoil and anguish inside. But you know what brings me through days like that? 
All right, is that awareness that God, you're in this. That's what I end up telling him. God, this is you. You're doing this. You're in this. You meant for this. You saw this. You planned this. You're allowing this for a good purpose in my life. And I don't want to miss that just because I'm being a crybaby right now. You have to say things like that to him. God is with us. That's one of his names. Emmanuel, God with us. He really is with us especially when you think he's not. And he's not merely with us, but he understands everything we're going through. He was tested and tempted in all points like we are, so that he could be our help in our time of need. Remember then that that testing is to produce his character in you. And I just wanna close with, with the thought that this episode that I'm talking about here, it didn't end right here at the end of verse uh, seven, I think it is. I believe that this ends in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Amen. Who is it that's going to get cast down? Not Jesus, <laughs> Satan. His own words are going to come back on him. Praise God for that. Temptation is an inescapable part of life on earth, and the way we handle temptation shapes the course of our life. Those who refuse to fight grow spiritually weak, empty, and powerless. Their life of sin is causing them to fall away from the Lord, who alone is the source of strength. This is the sad history of most of the men and women who have come into our counseling programs. A life characterized by temptation, defeat, despair, and unbelief. But they don't stay that way. As they learn how to battle temptation and are faithful to put those things into practice, they begin to learn how to fight. They begin to discipline themselves and grow strong in the Lord. Each victorious battle increases their strength for the next one. The battle never ends, but the fight gets easier. Soon they find that in the hands of God, the temptations that tormented them were turned into trials that transformed and purified their hearts. And that same grace is open for anyone listening to this program today. Take what you've heard and put it into practice, and God will do the same miracle in you. For Pure Life Ministries, I'm Nate Dancer, and we will see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.